morning's reading is from John 11, verses 1 to 44. If you have your Bible, you could open it and follow along with me. Now a certain man was ill, Lazarus of Bethany, the village of Mary and her sister Martha. It was Mary who anointed the Lord with ointment and wiped his feet with her hair, whose brother Lazarus was ill. So the sister sent to him, saying, Lord, he whom you love is ill. But when Jesus heard it, he said, This illness does not lead to death. It is for the glory of God, so that the Son of God may be glorified through it. Now Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. So when he heard that Lazarus was ill, he stayed two days longer in the place where he was. Then after this, he said to the disciples, Let us go to Judea again. The disciples said to him, Rabbi, the Jews were just now seeking to stone you, and are you going there again? Jesus answered, Are there not twelve hours in the day? If anyone walks in the day, he does not stumble, because he sees the light of this world. But if anyone walks in the night, he stumbles, because the light is not in him. After saying these things, he said to them, Our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I go to awaken him. The disciples said to him, Lord, if he has fallen asleep, he will recover. Now Jesus had spoken of his death, but they had thought he meant taking rest in sleep. Then Jesus told them plainly, Lazarus has died. And for your sake, I am glad that I was not there, so that you may believe. But let us go to him. So Thomas, called the twin, said to his fellow disciples, Let us go also, that we may die with him. Now when Jesus came, he found that Lazarus had already been in the tomb four days. Bethany was near Jerusalem, about two miles off, and many of the Jews had come to Martha and Mary to console them concerning their brother. So when Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went and met him. But Mary remained seated in the house. Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. But even now, I know that whatever you ask from God, God will give you. Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. Martha said to him, I know he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live, and everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? She said to him, Yes, Lord, I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God, who is coming into the world. When she had said this, she went and called her sister Mary, saying in private, The teacher is here and is calling for you. And when she heard it, she rose quickly and went to him. Now Jesus had not yet come into the village, but was still in the place where Martha had met him. When the Jews who were with her in the house, consoling her, saw Mary rise quickly and go out, they followed her, supposing that she was going to the tomb to weep there. Now when Mary came to where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet, saying to him, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. When Jesus saw her weeping, and the Jews who had come with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in his spirit and greatly troubled, and he said, Where have you laid him? They said to him, Lord, come and see. Jesus wept. So the Jews said, see how he loved him. But some of them said, could not he who opened the eyes of the blind man also kept this man from dying? Then Jesus, deeply moved again, came to the tomb. It was a cave and a stone lay against it. Jesus said, take away the, the stone. Martha, the sister of the dead man, said to him, Lord, by this time there will be an odor, for he has been dead four days. Jesus said to her, Did I not tell you that if you believed, you would see the glory of God? So they took away the stone, and Jesus lift, lifted up his eyes and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. 
I know that you always hear me, but I said this on account of the people standing around, that they may believe that you sent me. And when he had said these things, he cried out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come out! The man who had died came out, his hands and feet bound with linen strips, and his face wrapped with a cloth. Jesus said to them, Unbind him and let him go. Thank you, Colleen. All right. Well, good morning. Good morning. There we go. All right. Still here. It's good to be here with you this morning. My name is Jonathan. I am the campus pastor here. And uh, today we are continuing on in our series on doubt and addressing some of the, the, the major questions people have about uh, God, faith, and the Bible. And, and today we're taking on what is one of the biggest questions that people have uh, routinely when it comes to the Bible? And that is simply, how can God be good if there is so much evil and suffering in the world? And truthfully, this is, this is a big question, isn't it? This is, this is a big kind of concern, and it's one we, we face all the time. Right? It's always seemingly in front of us. We're always dealing with it. All you have to do is look around at the world, and, and you're going to see this being played out. Right? We hear all around the world that there's wars, there's violence, either happening or threatening to happen, that's escalating or it's getting worse. We hear widespread hunger all around the world. There are some estimates that nearly 10% of the world's population deals with malnutrition. That is, even if they have enough food, the food itself isn't enough to sustain them. We live in a world where terrorism, mass shootings, bombings have become almost commonplace in our news cycles. And that's not even talking about natural catastrophes that we see all the time. Hurricanes, tsunamis wreak havoc on developing nations and first world nations the same. We have floods, we have droughts all over the place. We have overpopulation that leads to human life being discarded as cheap or even irrelevant. Human trafficking has become a, a major player in global markets. That's not even to talk about the normal day-to-day -day kind of evil that we face. Things like spouses who abuse one another, people who lie, trick, swindle people out of their life savings seems as though law never catches the criminals, and when they do, the criminals seem to walk free on technicalities. We have diseases that run rampant throughout. Doctors still can't really explain where does cancer come from and how to really treat it. The best we do is poison the whole body and hope it dies. We have rape and murder. We have hate crimes. We have racism in our culture. That's not even to mention the history that we've just gone through in the last hundred years has been one of the bloodiest centuries in human existence. We have had two world wars and a bunch of dictators who have killed their people. The truth is we have a problem with evil. We have a problem with evil. And, and I'm going to guess that, that nothing of what I've just said is even news to any of you. In fact, it's probably, you saw it on the news last night. It's not hard to find. This kind of stuff comes up all the time. It's the world we live in, and so the question is, how can there be a God who is good if all of this evil is constantly going on? If God was real, if He cared at all, surely He would have dealt with this by now, right? How can God be good if children are dying? 
I said at the beginning of the series, I didn't want to sugarcoat any of these issues, so, so I'm not. And I'm sure all of you could add in your own experiences. You could add in the, the sufferings, the evil that you have seen around you. And so the question is, well, what do we do with this? What do we do with all of this? How do we say that there is a God here? Evil certainly seems to be real, so what about God? So this morning, I want us to look at this this question, want us to to work through this, and we're going to do it in a couple different ways. First, I I want to start off on just kind of the big picture, the the cosmic scale, if you will, and then kind of work down into, into real life. What do we do when we are actually dealing with these issues? And then say, what about the end? How is this actually going to get resolved? Is God actually going to be doing anything, right? I I will freely admit right now, I will probably not be able to answer every single question that can come up. This is a massive topic, and I'm not going to keep you here all day, so I'm not going to be able to cover everything. My goal is to say, I hope at least I can give you a framework for, for how to think, how to deal with this topic. All right, so that's what we're going to do this morning. We're, we're going to walk through this, and so I, I want to start off just with the big picture, right? The, the, the big cosmic scale. Let's look at this problem of evil, all right? Now, if you have gone into, say, uh, something like a philosophy 101 lecture, you, you might have heard this problem discussed, right? It's, it's kind of one of these classic things um, that, that comes across, but, but people actually talk this way, and, and usually it's not as formal but this is often what comes up. Problem of evil is presented in, in three points. All right, point number one, God is good. All right, that's what the Bible says. The Bible teaches that, that God is in fact good. We have no problem with that. Number two, God is all-powerful. He is all-knowing. Again, the Bible teaches that. The Bible tells us, yes, God is all-powerful. He does know all things. He's omnipotent, all-powerful. He is omniscient, all-knowing. Number three, evil exists. Again, actually, the Bible confirms that. The Bible teaches that evil does, in fact, exist, but here's where the problem comes in, right? Because the the classic uh, argument goes, you can't have all three, right? You can either have a God who is good, but who isn't powerful enough to actually do anything about evil. Sure, that, that could be the case, or you could, have, you could have a God who is all-powerful, who is all-knowing, but He's not actually good. So why would He ever even want to stop evil? Right? But you certainly can't have all three. And so the argument goes, it seems as though the God of the Bible cannot exist. Because we know evil exists, God certainly can't. It would be ridiculous to believe in any God at all. Now, I I said, most of the time, people, when you're talking to them, they're not going to break out three points. No, no. Usually, they're just going to say, I, I don't think God can exist because of, there's so much evil in this world. There's so much suffering. There's so much wrong. But usually, this is kind of the thought frame that's behind it. This is often what is going on in the background. So, so what do we do with this? Right? I said the Bible actually teaches all three of these points. It affirms all of them. So, so how do we deal with this problem of evil? Well, if you have taken a philosophy class or if you've done any uh, uh, looking into logic and, and all this kind of stuff, you're actually going to be able to say there isn't a contradiction here. 
right? This doesn't actually have an explicit contradiction in these three points. It, the, the contradiction comes because people have another assumption. There's an assumption underlying these three things that, that actually creates the problem. The assumption goes something like this. If a good, or a, it goes like this, a good God has no reason to allow evil to exist. See, that's the underlying assumption that, that most people carry, and it's what makes this seem like such a problem. Certainly, a good God who is powerful would want to eradicate evil immediately. That hasn't happened, therefore, God can't be real. But it's that last point, that, that assumption that we make, that is usually where we get ourselves in trouble. In fact, that's where the Bible actually says something different. See, the Bible's answer to this little problem of evil is that God will use evil for His good purposes. See, that's the biblical answer to the problem of evil. It's not denying that evil exists. It's not saying that it's bad or horrific. No, it is. But God is going to use it for His purposes. He's going to use it for His good purposes. If you know the, the story of Joseph, is probably the, the classic example of what this looks like, right? If you know Joseph and his coat of many colors, right? Joseph, he's, he's got 11 brothers, and, and Joseph is the favorite of his dad by a long shot, right? Everyone else gets kind of their normal clothes. Joseph gets all this spiffy stuff. His dad likes him more than his brothers. It creates a lot of animosity, as I'm sure you could think, right? His brothers start really hating him, start really disliking him, until one day they're, they're finally fed up with Joseph. They see Joseph coming from a long way out, and they're off in the wilderness, and they decide, you know what? It's time. We're done with him. We're just going to leave him here in a pit. So they grab him. They rip off his cloak. They were going to kill him, but, but one of them says, uh, maybe we shouldn't actually kill our own brother. Let's just leave him in this pit to die. And so they throw him in this pit, and, and as they're trying to discuss what to do next, slave traders start coming by, and they get this idea. Huh, you know what? Instead of killing him, wh why don't we actually make some money off of this guy? So they sell him off into slavery. Oh, that's much easier. They go back, they pour blood over his jacket, and they show it to their father. Joseph is dead. He was killed somewhere in the wilderness. Here, this is all we have to give back to you. And so Joseph ends up going off into slavery, and if you know the story, there's a couple different trials he ends up going through, gets into Potiphar's household, gets in trouble there, and he gets put into prison. Eventually, he starts serving in, in Egypt in the house of Pharaoh, and, and he actually does well, so well, in fact, that, that Pharaoh puts him over all of uh, his kingdom and says, you get to dictate all of the food resources that we have. See, God had already told him that, that they were in seven years of abundance. There was going to be lots of food for these seven years, and then it's going to be followed by seven years of famine, where actually it was going to be scarce. There was going to be hardly any left. And so Joseph, as he's now put in control here, starts gathering up. He starts storing things so that when it comes to those seven years, they actually have enough. He's able to manage, manage and parcel it out. And so what happens well, actually, God put Joseph right there so that people would be saved, so that thousands of people would actually have food for those years. And eventually, he gets reunited with his brothers. His brothers are some of those who are actually going down to Egypt to look for food. 
And when he finally reveals himself to them and he tells them what happened to him, this is his response at the end. He says, as for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good, to bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. See, the reason that God allowed these things to happen was because He actually had a greater good purpose in mind through it. In fact, that's what we see time and time again in the Bible, that God uses the evil actions, evil intentions of people and brings out good from it. In fact, if we start to reflect on our own life, we can probably see that pattern emerging. Some of the hardest things that we have gone through, the most difficult things, have actually shaped us into who we are today. We wouldn't be the people we are if we hadn't gone through some of those struggles. In fact, we are able to help others now because we've dealt with those things. We are able to connect with people in a whole different way that we never would have had if we hadn't actually had to struggle through these things. We often talk about how in pastoral ministry, that the best pastors lead with a limp. It means that they've gone through suffering, they've gone through trials, and they know how to lead well through those experiences. And so, it's interesting that when I was at my job interview, for this job, actually, Pastor, Pastor Matt, Pastor Ron, they were sitting down with me, and they said, okay, well, well do you have a limp? You know, what, what have you gone through? How can you help people? And I said, man, like, I, I haven't gone through a lot still pretty young, like, I, I can't say I've, I've limped nearly as much as so many. And it's funny because God has been fixing that over the last little while. <laughs> if you know, in, in the, first, the first year of me starting to work, actually it was just a few weeks after I had accepted the job here, I was told I wouldn't be able to have kids. It was a few months after that I was told I had cancer. As a few months after that, I actually ended up injuring my back so badly I couldn't walk for a week. And, and all those things have actually been such blessings for me in the end, because it's allowed me to actually be able to talk to so many more people than I ever thought I'd be able to, be able to connect with them who've gone through these kinds of issues and have gone through these trials, it's shaped me into who I'm actually able to be. God actually had a good reason for, for the suffering, for the pain, for the trials that I had to go through, right? In fact, the trials we go through are never in vain. God uses evil for His good purpose. Probably the biggest, the best example of this is Jesus, Jesus goes to the cross. He's put to death by the hands of people who meant nothing but evil towards Him, and yet God used that moment to bring about the greatest good the world has ever seen. Actually, that's exactly what God does. He uses evil. Uh, one one uh, theologian put it this way, evil is only ever the unwilling servant of God. That's exactly right. It's exactly right. God is going to use evil for His purposes. But, but you might ask the question that, okay, I, I can see that he, he does bring good things out of it, but, but, but why does He use evil? Why does He use evil to accomplish those ends? Surely He couldn't do it another way? Shouldn't, shouldn't there be some good way of accomplishing those things? Why does he even allow evil? Why doesn't he just eradicate it completely? 
If it's going to be for our good, why bother with the bad? Well, see, this is where the passage that we've just read is going to help us understand. If you do have a Bible, I encourage you to open back up to John chapter 11. We're going to kind of walk through this passage and, and help us see exactly what the Bible has to say on this issue. John chapter 11 opens with, with Jesus getting word that, that one of his friends has fallen ill, right? Lazarus, who was a close friend, and, and he had gotten sick, and he was at the point where he was dying, and so his sisters send word to Jesus, Jesus, come quick. We want you to help him. Please come. And then you get verse 5, which is so bizarre, isn't it? Verse 5 says, now Jesus loved Martha and her sister, Mary, and Lazarus. And when he heard that Lazarus was ill, he stayed two days longer in the place where he was. Jesus hears that, that Lazarus is sick, and so he stays two more days because he loved him so much? What exactly is going on? That doesn't seem like the right response. But actually, Jesus has begun to, to tell us why he is going to do that. Verse 4 gives us a bit of a clue. It gives us an answer. It says, but when Jesus heard it, he said, this illness does not lead to death. It is for the glory of God, so that the Son of Man may be glorified through it. See, why doesn't Jesus heal him? Why doesn't he go right away? Why does he allow this sickness to actually kill Lazarus? He says it's going to be for the glory of God, so that the greatness of God and who he is might be more clearly seen through what's about to happen, that Jesus himself might be seen as glorious. His beauty, his power, his glory can be seen, beheld and treasured greater than anything. Why is it that he allows this to happen? It's so that His glory could be seen brighter. It's like taking a candle into a dark room. Suddenly, that, that little candle, that little flame burns so bright, you can see so much by the light of one single candle, far more than you can in a full, bright, sunny day, right? God allows that dark background to showcase the greatness of what He's about to do, that Jesus has authority even over death itself. You might remember there's actually a similar story in the book of John. John chapter 9, Jesus comes and meets this blind man. And his disciples kind of a little bit rudely talking in the background and saying, well, Jesus, who, who exactly sinned? Why is this man blind? Was it because he did something wrong or was it because his parents did something wrong? And Jesus looks at him and says, neither. It's so that God might be glorified through him and Jesus heals him on the spot. See, God uses evil for His good purposes so that we can fuller, greater see His glory. Now, hear me, that, that's actually not the full answer, but it is the first part. It's not everything, but it is the part that I think we often misunderstand. We think that if God is good, He should do whatever we want Him to do. That if God is going to use evil for good purposes, it should only ever be for, for what I think He should do. And yet what God is going to do here is He's going to reveal His glory. Not necessarily make everything perfect and easy for us, but actually highlight the greatness of who He is. In fact, God loves us so much, He puts Himself on display so that we might behold and delight in Him. 
the Westminster Shorter Catechism, if you're familiar with that document, has a very helpful little question and answer. The question is, what is the chief end of man? What is the greatest goal that, that any man can have? The answer is, man's chief end is to glorify God and to enjoy Him forever. See, it's saying that actually our best life isn't sitting on a beach with a drink made it from a coconut in our hand, slowly sipping it and, and wasting away. Actually, the greatest thing in our life is going to be seeing, savoring, and delighting in the glory of God, showing who He is more and more. Paul writes in 1 Corinthians, he says, so whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. That is our chief end. God has a plan for our suffering. The evil that we experience, it's so that His glory might be greater seen, that we might behold it and delight in it. Now, again, I, I said that that's not the full answer. That's part of it, and in fact, that's part we, we need to see, but actually, there's far more to it. Right? Because we need to have an answer more than just a grand cosmic scope. What does that mean when we actually are going through it? When we're actually in the midst of suffering, in the midst of grief and pain, what do we say? Is God just up there going, hey, don't worry about it. It's going to be for my glory, so, so you just, just suck it up. You'll be fine. Right? So God's some sort of cosmic egomaniac, doesn't care about anything that happens to us. Again, I think our passage helps us answer that, shows how God actually responds to evil. Look back at John chapter 11. Jesus is given this news, your friend Lazarus, he, he's fallen ill. And so Jesus then starts going. Two days later, he starts going, making the journey up to Bethany. And as he's going, his disciples are talking on the way. And they're asking, well, well okay, if, if, if Lazarus is just falling asleep, why are we going? Right? People up there want to kill you, Jesus. We shouldn't be going. He'll recover if he's just sleeping. And you can almost see Jesus looking at him going, what are you talking about? I said he was sleeping. I was being nice. He's going to die, right? Verse 14, Jesus told them plainly, Lazarus has died, right? But he continues on, verse 15. He says, and for your sake, I'm glad I was not there, so that you may believe but let us go to him. Right, Jesus tells his disciples the reason why he waited. It was so that actually their faith might be strengthened in the end. It was so that they could believe that Jesus genuinely has the power he has claimed to have. Right, it's a little bit, imagine you have bought a new truck, okay? New Ford F-150 has a towing capacity of around 9,000 pounds. That's crazy. That's a huge, big number. Right? And so you can, you can say that and you're like, oh, that's great. That's a cool number. But it's not until you actually hitch something onto that thing. When you take some giant trailer and you put it on the back and it just cleanly glides away like nothing is behind it, then you can actually see the power that it has. Right? That, that claim now has a basis in reality. Well, that's exactly what Jesus is going to do. Jesus has been telling them about who he is and what he's come to do, and now he's going to show them that he has the authority over death. But in that same sentence, what does he say? Let us go to him. See, Jesus actually wants to enter into that pain, into that grief, into that suffering that his friends are going through. 
And so when they finally get to Bethany, Martha runs out to meet Jesus. And she is crying. She's wailing. She comes up to him and says, Jesus, why didn't you come? If you were here, my brother wouldn't have died. If you were here with us last week, you'll know this is exactly what we talked about. We talked about actually running towards Jesus in our pain, in our grief, bringing our complaints to him, not running away from him. And in fact, Jesus doesn't respond with some sort of lecture. He says, I want you to know your brother is going to rise again. And you can kind of see Martha going, yeah, I I know. I know he's going to rise again on the last day. But actually, Jesus had something far more immediate in mind, didn't he? Verse 25, Jesus says, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? See, Jesus wasn't just talking about the final resurrection. In fact, he was talking about what he was about to do right now, that he himself had the power to give life. And in just a moment, he's going to prove that power. He's going to actually raise Lazarus, but he's going to enter into that pain. Look at verse 33. Verse 33 says, when Jesus saw her, this is Mary now, weeping, and the Jews who had come with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in his spirit and greatly troubled. This wasn't a light, flippant thing for Jesus. Verse 38 says, then Jesus, deeply moved again, came to the tomb. Verse 35 simply says, Jesus wept. It's one of the shortest verses in our Bible, and yet it is one of the most impactful. Jesus, who is God himself, the one who created all things, who knows the end from the beginning, who knows why it is that Lazarus died, who knows exactly what he's about to do, he's still at the graveside of his friend, is weeping. See, here's the truth. When we think of God, who who works through and in all of this stuff, the sovereign God who rules over all, it is not some kind of unmoved stoicism, some kind of uh, detached, hyper-rational, unfeeling deity. No, God actually became a man. He lived among us. He entered into this world soaked in evil and suffering and pain. And he wept over the evil and sin in this world. Jesus goes to his friends, and he is comforting them in their time of need. Psalm 34 writes, The Lord is near to the brokenhearted and saves the crushed in spirit. Many are the afflictions of the righteous, but the Lord delivers him out of them all. See, when we talk about the problem of evil... We can talk about God being sovereign over all of these things, and He is going to work through evil, and He's going to bring good ends, but that doesn't mean He looks at it and says it doesn't matter. Actually, God cares deeply about these things. He is grieved over the wickedness of this world that that breaks His heart. He's not cold towards those who mourn. And, And the truth is, unlike Joseph, who who can stand at the end of his life and say, this is why those things happened to me. For a lot of us, we don't necessarily get that view. 
We can often see little bits, little pieces here and there as to why we had to go through these things. Maybe we can come to see some of the outcomes, but ultimately, a lot of them we don't know until we actually stand before God and we can ask Him why these things happen. We don't know, but what we do have is a God who comes to us who weeps with us, who mourns with us, who enters into this world. Actually, the the purpose Jesus had for that was so that we can actually grow stronger in our faith with Him, that we can actually draw closer to Him, that our faith can grow. If if you're a Christian here, you you probably know this. Your, Your faith has grown the most as you've gone through the most difficult times. That as you learn to to, to rely on God more and more as things get difficult, that's when God shows Himself more and more to us. Actually, that in our grief, in our pain, in our trial, God meets us there. God uses evil for His good purposes. God enters into our world and weeps over sin with us. But that's not the end of the story. See, that's not the end of the story. Jesus is going to actually resolve this problem. He didn't simply come to weep with us. He came to put an end to the weeping. He came to put an end to the crying. Look back at John chapter 11. Jesus is now approaching the tomb. He gets there, and Lazarus has now been dead for four days. And Jesus gets to this tomb, and there's, there's a stone that's been put across the face so that the smell doesn't actually reach anyone. And, and so Jesus comes, and He says, I want you to move that stone. And everyone looks at Him and says, no, Jesus, that's there for a reason. No one wants to smell that. Please don't ask us to roll that away. Jesus says, please roll it away. Verse 40, He says, did I not tell you that if you believed, you would see the glory of God? This is what Jesus actually came to do. He prays, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I knew that you always hear me, but I said this on account of the people standing around, that they may believe that you sent me. Jesus came to confront death head on. He came. This is what he was going to do. He was going to put an end to this suffering, to this pain, to this torment that was there. And so he prays, God, I want you to show them what I'm doing here. He came to put an end to death. Verse 43, Jesus standing now before an open tomb, stares into it and commands that death would no longer have dominion. It says, when he had said these things, he cried out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. And Lazarus stood up. I I love the way that the Greek reads in this text because the very next word is, he came out. It was an immediate thing. There was no pause. There was no waiting. Lazarus stood up. Death had no claim over him any longer. Jesus was going to be obeyed. He had the power to put death to an end. And so Jesus stands in front of this tomb in the midst of grief, of sorrow, of sadness, of evil, and of sin and says to death, your time is done. That is what Jesus came to show them. See, that's the good news, is that when God works for His glory, it is the best news possible for us. 
When God works to put His glory on display, it is for our great good that we might be saved. Jesus came to put an end to evil and suffering. And this display with Lazarus is really nothing but the warm-up event. It's really nothing but, but just kind of a showcase of who he is and what he's going to do before the real thing. Jesus came not to raise one man back to life, but to give eternal life to all who would believe. He entered into this world of pain and of suffering to be put on a cross and executed by an angry mob, to be put to death, but he would not stay there. Jesus had the power over death, so He doesn't stay in the grave. In fact, He rises again. In fact, that's where the end of the whole story ends up coming. Jesus is going to put an end to all of evil, all of sickness, all of death. It will be finished finally. When He returns, Revelation 21 puts it so beautiful, beautifully. It says, He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. And he who is seated on the throne, that is Jesus, said, Behold, I am making all things new. The truth is, sin and evil, they have an expiry date not going to last forever. In fact, Jesus rose to give us this promise of eternal life, that He is going to come back and that He will deal with it fully, completely, and entirely. It will be gone. God will destroy all evil. He will get rid of it. God, in fact, will judge all the earth. No wicked deed, no evil intention left unpunished. No, no, Hitler did not get away with it. Neither did Stalin, neither did Mao, neither did Mugabe, none of these men are going to get away with it. No, in fact, God is going to deal with all evil on the earth. But see, here's the truth. If God is going to deal with all evil, that means us too. See, here's where we normally get things a little bit backwards. We, we look at around and we say, God, why aren't you dealing with all of the evil out there? And I think if God were for just a second to bring the kind of justice and swiftly as we want, we would so soon be crying out, please, God, have mercy on me. See, that's the thing. God is going to deal with the evil in our heart as well. He's going to deal with the evil that we have. And so, here's the good news. It's why Jesus came. Jesus came not simply to die and rise again, not simply to give us a promise of eternal life, but to actually deal with our sin, to actually deal with the punishment for, for all of the evil things that, that we have done. Jesus said, I will take that punishment instead of them so that anyone who would believe, anyone who would trust in Him would be saved. 1 Peter 3.18 puts it this way, For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that He might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the Spirit. See, Jesus died that we might have eternal life. He took the punishment for our evil actions, our evil hearts, our evil thoughts, so that anyone who would trust in Him would be saved. See, the good news is that when God works for His glory, it is our salvation. 
that when God says, I'm going to glorify Jesus, we are saved. So here's the truth. I'm so glad God doesn't destroy all evil immediately because if he did, I wouldn't have lasted. I wouldn't have made it through. I'm so thankful that God is patient with us. I'm so thankful that, that he actually allows us time to, to repent to turn back to him, to say, I'm sorry for what I've done. I, I need to trust in what you have done. It's my only hope that when we stand before the judgment, all of us are guilty, but Jesus has paid the way. See, God is patient with us so that we actually can have time to repent and come to know him. He uses the trials we go through for His good purposes. He uses uh, the sorrow and meets us in it, weeps with us, and one day He is going to put an end to all evil forever. God works through it. He meets us in it, and He will bring an end to it. See, the problem of evil isn't really a problem for God. But the question is, well, what do we do with that then? Maybe you're here this morning, and maybe you're actually going through this kind of suffering. Maybe, maybe all the things we're talking about, the trial and the pain, it, that's just Monday. That, that's what your Monday morning looks like. You're just going to be right back into it. Hear me, I'm not going to say that, that this is going to make everything easier. I'm not going to say that it's not going to be painful, but hear me, your trial, your, your pain, your, your grief is not in vain. In fact, God is going to use it for His good purposes. So hear me, draw near to Him today. Would you actually seek after Him, go to Him, and actually say, God, would you please strengthen, build my faith so that I might know you more? But maybe you're here and you don't actually know Him. Maybe you're here and you're saying, I, I've, I don't know this Jesus. I, I don't know what He has done for me. Let me invite you this morning. If that's you here today, would you come, come talk to me, come talk to someone who you came with, and, and actually find out more about who Jesus is, what He has done, the forgiveness that He has to offer that is open to all and to anyone who would repent and trust in Him. See, the good news is that God is going to work in and through all of this, that, he, that we might actually behold His glory, that we might be saved. If that's you here this morning, come talk with me. We'd love to pray through this. If you're going through this kind of suffering, lean in. Let us pray with you. God gave us a body to be together so that we would not actually go through this alone. I could preach another sermon on that, but I won't. This morning, we're, we're going to close by just moving into a time of communion. So those who are, who are serving communion, those who are on the worship team, if you can make your way forward. But if you're not familiar with this practice, what communion really is, is it is a symbol. It's, it's a reminder of what Jesus has done. It's, it's a symbol that we are actually called then to participate in. It's just bread and juice, but it represents the, the body of Jesus. It represents His blood that was shed. And in fact, it is um, a reminder of the fact that He took our punishment for our sins. He died in our place that one day we might rise with Him. So if you're here this morning and, that, and that's you, 
You've placed your trust in Jesus Christ. You have confessed your sins, and you are seeking to walk in obedience to Him. Let me invite you to come forward. Take part with us. If you're here this morning and that's not you, you're not at the place where you would call Jesus your Lord and Savior, I'll invite you just to simply stand, sing with us as the band plays. Please don't feel singled out. Everyone was once at a point where they also didn't participate. Let me invite you simply to stand, sing along with us, consider what it is that Jesus has done. Let's go to God in prayer. Father, we are so thankful, Lord, that that you use the things that we go through, that it's not pointless, that it's not meaningless, that it's not in vain, but actually you are using it for a greater purpose. Father, I pray, would you open our eyes to be able to see that, to be able to see your glory being put on display. Father, I pray, would you meet us in our time of grief? Would you meet us in our need as we long to know you more? Father, I pray, would you work in this world your will? And Father, we pray, we are longing for the day where we will finally forever be with you. Oh, Lord, I pray, prepare our hearts for that day. We pray these things in your name. Amen.